Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. As promised, tonight we're going to start the book of Ezekiel, so you can turn there. Ezekiel is 48 chapters, which means to do the whole book is going to take us some time. From 40 to 48, those last chapters have to do with a temple that up until now has never been built. Never in history can we find any temple that we can point at and say, that's Ezekiel's temple. And yet, it's described in very exacting detail, and sacrifices are re-begun in it, and we're told the inner court, the outer court, we're told where the holiest place is, we're told very exacting detail. And the reason that I like that, and the reason that I'm starting with it tonight is because I have friends who are amillennial. You have friends who are amillennial. Mm -hmm. I have friends who like to spiritualize the Bible in order to make sense of it. And I love to take them to the last nine chapters of the book of Ezekiel and say, spiritualize this. And they can't because the language is so definite and so exacting. So if we're going to spend all these weeks talking about the book of Ezekiel, we better just conclude right at the very front that Ezekiel is an honest reporter, an honest prophet of God, honestly conveying to us what God actually said to him and showed him. Or we have to conclude that because of the last nine chapters, nothing in the book of Ezekiel can be believed. Because it either means exactly what it says, because it is so exacting, or we have to conclude that we have no idea what it actually says. Yeah, that's the one they are planning right there. Well, some folks would say it's the one they're planning for the tribulation. Some would say it's the one they're planning for the millennium. I've read commentators who say that it's the new Jerusalem temple. And so we don't know. Until it's built, and until it's built to these specifications, we don't know. Now, first rule before we go into Ezekiel. This is the same rule that I utilized when we went into the book of Revelation. That rule is nobody knows more about what Ezekiel saw than Ezekiel does. That means you're not allowed to say, well, what this means is. What this implies is, no, those aren't good exegetical approaches. In order to read the book of Ezekiel, we're going to read some astounding things. Tonight, we're going to read some amazing things. Because the book of Ezekiel launches right in, boom, with four living creatures. And then the appearance of God. So we're going to read about the majesty of God, the splendor of God. How God represents himself. He's God. He could represent himself any way he wants. And this is how he represents himself a couple of times in the book of Ezekiel. And then Ezekiel is at a loss to really find words to explain what he's seeing. Martin Mull years ago was quoted as saying, writing about music is like dancing about architecture. I really like that quote because what it means is some things, like music, are impossible to describe with words. No matter how hard we try, we can say, oh, it's beautiful, oh, it's melodic, oh, it was... But writing about music, you have to hear the music. Same thing here. Ezekiel sees God. He sees the very splendor of God, and he sees the four living creatures that constantly stand before God. And now he has to describe them. And there's no real words to describe them. So he's going to do his best, and we just have to accept that at face value. Whatever he describes, whatever he says, he's the one who saw it. And whatever he saw, he knows more about than we do, especially all these years later. 
So I'm going to try as hard as I can not to speculate, but in order to just let Ezekiel say what he says. The book of Ezekiel is really good historically because Ezekiel is in the second wave of deportees coming out of Jerusalem and going into Babylon. In the first wave of deportees, it was all the folks like Daniel, all the educated people, all the the well-to-do and the philosophers and the cooks and the tradesmen and the people who really knew what they were doing, those people all got taken in the first deportation because they could actually benefit Babylon in some way. The second deportation was more of the standard folks, the folks who had some skills, but they're just workers. They're common workers, and they're going to get put to work in the fields or bricklaying or doing something like that. And then several years later, there's the final fall of Jerusalem, the final destruction of the walls, the destruction of the temple, and that's when the, the least of the Jerusalemites are brought in, if Jerusalemites is a word, are finally brought into Babylon. Ezekiel is in that second wave, which means that his entire 20-year career as a prophet is all served out in Babylon. And he is going to be God's mouthpiece in order to tell Judah and Israel, who he separates continually, who he constantly recognizes as two separate houses. In fact, he's going to call them two erring sisters. He's even going to give them names, Ahola and Aholabah. And then he's going to say that all the way back to Egypt, they were two unfaithful sisters. So he's going to prophesy against Judah separately from Israel. And he's going to prophesy against Israel. And he's going to tell Judah what they've done wrong. He's going to tell Israel what they've done wrong. And he's going to tell Israel that the time of their deportation is different than the time of Judah's deportation. So he makes very, very clear distinctions between Israel and Judah. But his entire 20-year ministry is all in Babylon. And so God gives him visual aids. God tells him to start doing things that are just simply odd behavior. Like he's going to tell him, lay down on one side and stay there. In fact, I'm going to put ropes on you so you can't roll over. And you're going to lay down on your side a day for a year, all the days of Israel's deportation. And then while you're laying there, you have to eat cakes. I'm going to give you some grains, but I'm going to measure out the amount of cakes. I'm going to measure out the amount of grain you can eat. I'm going to measure out the amount of water you can eat so that you're just barely subsisting because I'm going to make Israel starve and hungry and searching for water. And it's going to be represented in you. And then when that's over, as if it weren't enough, you're going to roll over to your other side. And I'm going to tie you down there. And you're going to serve out all the days of Judah's export out of their land. And you're going to eat cakes. And then just to make it worse, just to make sure that you understand how defiled your bread is going to be, you have to cook your bread over human dung. And then Ezekiel argues and says, Okay, I've, I've never been unclean. I've never eaten anything unclean. And God says, all right, I'll let you use cow dung instead. And that you can burn to cook your bread while you lay there as a representative of what I'm going to do to Israel and Judah. And it's going to be painful for them. So it's going to be painful for you. He has to do outrageous things. Like he has to beat a hole in the wall of his house and take his furniture out. He has to do all of these very visual things so that the Israelites will say, what are you doing? And then he can explain, this is what God's going to do to you. 20 years that goes on. In fact, God at one point gets so angry that after explaining the relationship that he has with the two erring sisters, he then tells Ezekiel, I'm going to take your wife away. I'm going to kill your wife, and don't you mourn. Don't you shed a tear. You go about your work. Because God's wife was gone. Israel was gone. And before he does it, before he assigns Ezekiel to eat the scroll that is the word of God, before he does any of those things, he shows Ezekiel the splendor of the God he's dealing with. 
So first, sort of like the giant indicative imperative, first God reveals himself to Ezekiel, and Ezekiel sees him in all his wonder and his splendor, and then God starts doling out the things that Ezekiel has to do to prefigure what God's going to do to Israel, which again just shows you how bad the sin of Israel was. And then God's talking to dry bones and saying, this is the whole house of Israel who I will raise up on the last day. And he has Ezekiel take two sticks and write on them for Judah and for Israel. And he says, now put them together in your hand. And when you walk among the people, they're going to say, what do these two sticks mean? He says, it's because God's going to bring back Israel and Judah. It's because God is going to remove the enmity between Israel and Judah. God is going to restore Israel and Judah. And then from there, you start getting into 40 and you start the predictions of this temple to come, which as of yet, as I said, hasn't been built. So that's a, a brief overview of what we're in for for the book of Ezekiel. The rest of it for all these months or years or whatever it takes is going to be filling in all the blanks and looking at all the details. But what I want you to see is I've been saying for years and years and years that all of the Old Testament prophets, when it comes to Israel and Judah, they all speak with one voice. And Ezekiel, the same thing. Ezekiel is going to start out with the glory of God, and then he's going to start telling Israel and Judah how terrible they've been. They've been so terrible that they deserve the punishment of God. And they're going to receive the punishment of God. And just about the time you think, well, this is fatal for Judah. This is over. He's even represented his relationship with them by killing Ezekiel's wife. So that's it. It's over for Israel and Judah. And that's when God says he's going to restore them. He's going to bring them back. He's going to plant them in their own land. They're going to have a magnificent temple. And so again, just like all the other prophets... He's going to speak about the restoration of national Israel and national Judah. And yet again, inescapably, we're going to have to argue for God's faithfulness, despite what other people may say about God being done with Israel. There's no way to read Ezekiel and come away with God's done with Israel. Instead, you're going to come away with our God is really, really faithful. And as again... I know I sound like a broken record. I know I sound like a broken record. I know I sound like a broken record. But if God is not faithful to Israel, what confidence can you have that he's going to be faithful to you? If God can make promises this exacting to these people, the very people who he's taken out of their land, the very people who he gave a temple to and then removes his glory, those very people who have all those very specific characteristics and history with God, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the ones who Moses gives the law to, the only people on the planet who ever had covenant with God, if God can have that intimate a relationship with them and then say, never mind, I didn't mean you, I meant the church. Well, then what confidence can you possibly have that when he promises the church that he's going to save them and elect them and forgive them, how can you have any confidence that he means that since he would obviously have a history of changing his mind? And you don't want a God who changes his mind. You want a God who's faithful to his word. So the second deportation into Babylon out of Jerusalem happens about 597 B.C. So we even know what time period we're talking about here. Roughly 600 years before Jesus is even on the planet. After he's taken into Babylon, it's another four years before God gives him this first vision that we're going to look at in chapter 1. So let's start at chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to do a little bit of skipping around in Ezekiel and in Revelation. Oh, good, I'm glad I said, and Revelation. Every chapter of the book of Ezekiel, except for one, is alluded to or directly quoted in the book of Revelation. So as you're looking through the book of Ezekiel, 
you're going to hear echoes of what you know from the book of Revelation. Because it's not that John the Revelator knew his Ezekiel and imported some Ezekiel into his writing. It's because the same God represents himself the same way, demonstrates himself the same way, regardless of who it is that sees it. So Ezekiel and John are very much in agreement with each other. And you're going to see a little bit of that right away. Because as soon as we're introduced to the four living creatures, you've got to go over and look at them in Revelation because the four living creatures show up. And they're described the same way. So now it came about on the fifth day of the fourth month. Okay, he's being real exacting about when this happened, which is really helpful. Ezekiel does this all the way through the book. Gives us dates, gives us places, gives us locales. Let me also point out, liars don't do that. If he was making this stuff up, he would not give us names, dates, and places that we could check. But he tells us where he was, and when he was there, and when these things happened. Because he's trying to convey genuine, honest reports of what he actually sees and experiences. Now it came about in the 30th year, on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was by the river Chebar among the exiles, the river Chebar, a tributary of the great river of the Euphrates that flows through Babylon. So he's telling you right where he was. By the river Chebar among the exiles, those are the Israelite exiles out of Jerusalem, and the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, in the fifth year, of King Jehoiakim's exile. When we were reading in First and Second Kings, we read about King Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim, and so we know exactly where this fits in the succession of kings that ever ruled over Israel and Judah. So the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans, by the river Chebar, and there the hand of the Lord came upon him. And that's it. That's as much as Ezekiel talks about himself. He tells you where he was, what was happening, what the date was. He tells you twice what the date is. Not only the date by the Chaldean kings, but the date by the last Israelite king. He wants you to know exactly when this was, and he tells you where he was, among the Chaldeans, in Babylon, River Chebar, among the exiles, that's where I was. Verse 4, and as I looked, behold, a storm wind was coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing forth continually, and bright light around it, and in its midst, something like glowing metal in the midst of the fire. Now, whatever that did for your imagination, your image of that is probably different than everybody else's image in the room because Ezekiel's just trying to find words to describe what he sees. There's a great storm wind coming from the north. Now, by the way, it is significant that the Chaldeans, Babylon, all of that is north of Israel. And so, of course, it's a north wind that's coming. As I looked, behold, a storm wind was coming from the north. That is where the storm came from and landed on Israel. A great cloud with fire flashing forth continually and a bright light around it. And in its midst, something like glowing metal in the midst of the fire. And within it were figures resembling four living beings. And this was their appearance. They had human form, but each of them had four faces and four wings. That's pretty much where the human part stops. They had four faces and four wings. Now, I've seen a lot of artistic renderings by folks who have tried to capture that image. Characters with wings, with human bodies. Some of them create four heads. So it's like a four-headed being. But he doesn't say they had four heads. He said they had four faces. And their incomplete unity in their service to God. So we don't know, did they have a head with four faces? We don't know if they had four heads. We, Ezekiel's just describing what he's seeing. 
Each of them had four faces and four wings. And their legs were straight, and their feet were like a calf's hoof. And they gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, were human hands. As for the faces and the wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another, and their faces did not turn when they moved. Each of them went straight forward. That's why their legs were straight. As for the form of their faces, each one had the face of a man, all four had the face of a lion on the right side, and the face of a bull on the left side, and all four of them had the face of an eagle, and such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above. Each had two touching another being and two covering their bodies. Isn't that interesting? That God would create not only creatures that have these four particular faces, but then he would create them in a way where they had wings for transport and they had wings just to cover themselves. Now, I've heard plenty of people speculate and plenty of commentators who have said, that's because in front of God, even the pure and righteous angels are not pure in his sight. They cover themselves with their wings. I think that's a reasonable explanation. But I'm going to try to stick to my rule, which is, this is what Ezekiel saw. And however we interpret it, we have to understand that it's all speculation and interpretation. What he saw was four wings. So such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above. Each had two that were touching another being and two that were covering their bodies. And each went straight forward wherever the spirit, this is so interesting to me, wherever the spirit was about to go, they would go without turning as they went. So what you're going to find out in a second is that they have the ability to move any direction, but they're always pointed forward. So it's almost like they're moving left or moving right or moving back, moving forward, but their legs are straight and they don't turn. They're always forward. And then they go wherever the Spirit of God is going to go. Wherever the Spirit of God is about to go, they go first. They precede the Spirit of God. Verse 13. In the midst of the four living beings, there was something that looked like burning coals of fire, like torches darting back and forth among the living beings. Okay, that's mind-blowing. That's Spielbergian. That's... So there's these four angels, living beings. We're going to find out in chapter 10, we're going to look at it tonight, that they're cherubim. So they're angels that are always before God and are leading essentially the chariot of God. And the chariot of God is on wheels full of eyes and the throne of God is on the chariot. And so they go before God and they lead the procession of the chariot of the majesty of the throne of God. So wherever the Spirit of God's going to be, they go first. And in the midst of that, as if that weren't enough, there's something that looked like burning coals of fire, like torches darting back and forth among the living beings. So their wings all touch, and there's torches running back and forth between them. The fire was bright, and lightning was flashing from the fire. Okay, as if the fire wasn't scary enough, and as if the fire wasn't bright enough. There's lightning coming out of the fire, and torches running back and forth among the four living beings, and they're coming straight forward or moving sideways or back, and they're going wherever the Spirit of God's going to go. You know that when Ezekiel saw this, he was like, I, I have to write this. I have to remember this. I have to write this down. How do I describe this? Because God is ultimately indescribable. And the living beings ran to and fro like bolts of lightning. 
So apparently they move exceptionally fast. Now I looked at the living beings, and behold, there was one wheel on the earth beside the living beings for each of the four of them. Now he just launches into wheels like we know that there's going to be wheels in a minute. And so there are wheels on the earth. There's a wheel for each of them, and it's beside each of them. And Ezekiel does not describe for us what the relationship is between the cherubim and the wheels. The wheels just part of it. Here's the cherubim, living creatures. Here's the wheels. It's just part of the package. The flames, the fire, the torches, back and forth between them, fire in the midst of them, lightning coming out of it, and that's just the beginning part of the procession. That's just to get you ready for what's coming. The appearance of the wheels and their workmanship was like sparkling barrel, and all four of them had the same form, their appearance and their workmanship being as if one wheel were within another wheel. So now we're talking about wheels inside of wheels, and these wheels go wherever the living beings go, and the wheels are part of the reason that commentators have described this as the chariot of God, and that the four living creatures that are men and animals are all leading the chariot of God. Whenever they moved, they moved in any of four directions without turning as they moved. As for their rims, they were lofty and awesome. At this point, I think Ezekiel has just stopped trying to find words to describe it because now he's down to just adjectives. Now he's down to, what was it like? They were lofty and it was awesome. And their rims were lofty and awesome, and their rims for all four of them were full of eyes round about. So the rims of the wheels are full of eyes. And it's wheels within wheels. And so I think it's fair, again, the interpreters who have said this is representative of the all-seeing, all-knowing of God, that these wheels within wheels are full of eyes that see everything, I think that's a fair interpretation. I certainly don't know what else you'd make of that. So now there's these wheels that are full of eyes. They're lofty. They're awesome. Verse 19, and whenever the living beings moved, the wheels moved with them. And whenever the living beings rose from the earth, the wheels rose also. And wherever the spirit was about to go, they would go in that direction. So wherever the Spirit of God was about to go, they went first. And then the Spirit of God proceeds. Wherever the Spirit was about to go, they would go in that direction, and the wheels rose close behind them, for the Spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. I have no idea what that means now. I'm completely at this point flummoxed by the language. All we know at this point is that the the spirit of those creatures is in the wheels. And if the spirit of the living creatures who are cherubim are in the wheels and the wheels are full of eyes, then again, that gives the impression of universal understanding and recognition of everything that's happening. In other words, you don't get away with anything. God knows, God sees, God's aware. Wherever the spirit was about to go, They would go in that direction, and the wheels rose close beside them, and the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. And whenever those went, these went. And whenever those stood still, these stood still. And whenever those rose from the earth, the wheels rose close behind them, for the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. So wherever the living beings go, the wheels go. Whenever the uh, cherubim stand still, the wheels stand still. When the cherubim rise up off the earth, after them the wheels go up off the earth. Now let's just stop right there at verse 22 for a second. We're going to pick up again. But turn over to Revelation 4 for just a moment because I mentioned to you 
that these same creatures appear in Revelation. So turn to Revelation 4, and we will start around verse 5. Now let's start at verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1 of the book of Revelation, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard was like the sound of a trumpet speaking to me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. As we continue through Ezekiel 1, he's going to see the same thing. This is something that God does to display himself. There's light and there's rainbows and there's splendor. So John sees the same thing. Verse 5, And from the throne proceed flashes of lightning and sounds, and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal, and in the center and around the throne four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. And the first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had the face of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them, had six wings, they're full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, and who is, and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, then the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy art thou God, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for thou didst create all things, and because of thy will, they existed, and they were created. So John sees four living creatures before the throne of God when he's brought up into heaven. So these four living creatures appear to always be before the throne of God. Back to Ezekiel. Go to Ezekiel 3. starting at about 10, verse 10. Moreover, he, that's God, said to me, Son of man, take into your heart all my words which I will speak to you, and listen closely, and go to the exiles, to the sons of your people, and speak to them and tell them whether they listen or not. Thus says the word of God. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard a great rumbling sound behind me, and blessed be the glory of the Lord in his place. Does that sound like what John saw? There were thunders and there were sounds and there were angels declaring the glory of God. Here the spirit lifts me up and I hear great rumbling sounds behind me that are saying, blessed be the glory of the Lord in his place. And I heard the sound of the wings of the living beings touching one another and the sound of the wheels beside them even a great rumbling sound. So the spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went embittered in the rage of my spirit, and the hand of the Lord was strong on me. Go over to chapter 10. So we keep reading about these living creatures. These living creatures are very vital to the appearance of God. God does not appear on his own. He is always preceded by utterly magnificent images. He is always preceded by cherubim, which they're going to be called here in chapter 10. He's always preceded by something we can't begin to imagine, something we can't conceive of, something we can't describe with words because he's 
preparing the people he's going to appear in front of. I think if they just suddenly saw his glory, the way Moses said, show me your glory, and God said, I can't do that. It would be too much for you. I'll put you in the cleft of a rock. I'll put my hand over you. I'll make all my glory pass by you, and I'll declare my own name, but then I'll take my hand away, and you'll see the last little bits of my glory, and that's going to make your face shine. So I, I don't think God can just erupt on the stage of anybody's life without it being too much, too overwhelming. And so first there is the preparation of the angels. And then the spirit that lifts people up on their feet, implying that when this kind of imagery occurs, when this kind of manifestation of the glory of God appears, people don't have a choice. They get on their face. And then it's up to God to lift them up and say, now I'll talk to you. And is it worth pointing out that that is the opposite of being slain in the spirit? Is that worth it? Because being slain in the spirit... Then it's, then it's the people who are knocking you down. God, people just fall forward, not backward, forward to their face in a sign of worship. Chapter 10, verse 1. Now I looked, and behold, in the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, something like a sapphire stone in appearance, resembling a throne that appeared above them. Okay, so wherever they are, there's wheels, and now he sees something like a, like a chariot, something riding above the wheels that has a throne on it. And he spoke to the man clothed in linen. We'll get to him when we get to chapter 10. And he said, enter between the whirling wheels under the cherubim and fill your hands with coals of fire from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he entered in my sight. Now the cherubim were standing on the right side of the temple when the man entered, and the cloud filled the inner court. And then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple, and the temple was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And moreover, the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. And it came about when he commanded the man clothed in linen, saying, Take fire from between the whirling wheels, from between the cherubim. He entered and he stood beside the wheel. And then the cherub stretched out his hand from between the cherubim to the fire that was between the cherubim and took some and put it in the hands of the one clothed in linen who then took it and went out. And the cherubim appeared to have the form of a man's hand under their wings. Then I looked and behold, Four wheels beside the cherubim, one wheel beside each cherub, and the appearance of the wheels was like the gleam of a Tarshish stone. And as for their appearance, all four of them had the same likeness, as if one wheel were within another wheel. When they moved, they went in any of four directions without turning as they went, but they followed in the direction which they faced without turning as they went. And their whole body, their backs, their hands, their wings, and the wheels were full of eyes all around, and the wheels belonged to the four of them. That's exactly what John saw, the living creatures before the throne that were full of eyes within and without. That's how they're described here. And each of them had four faces, and the first face was like the face of a cherub. The second was like the face of a man. The third was like the face of a lion. The fourth was like the face of an eagle. Then the cherubim rose up, and now Ezekiel finally tells us, they are the living creatures that I saw by the river Chebar. So now he's saying, now that I see them and recognize them again, I'm describing the same thing I saw at the beginning of the book by the river Chebar 
the living beings with the four faces, with the wings that touch, with the fire and, and the glowing lightning and the sound of rumbling. The sound of their wings is like the voice of God speaking. And they go wherever the Spirit of God is about to go. These were the cherubim. Then the cherubim rose up. They are the living beings that I saw by the river Chebar. And when the cherubim moved, the wheels would go beside them. Also, when the cherubim lifted up their wings to rise from the ground, then the wings would not turn from being beside them. And when the cherubim stood still, the wheels would stand still. And when they rose up, the wheels would rise up with them, for the spirit of the living beings was in them. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. So the cherubim apparently have the job of not only worshiping God constantly because they're before God constantly, but they are, he describes it as almost part of their body, part of them are these wheels that are built into them so that when God moves, he rises above them and they are the wheels that transport the throne of God wherever the spirit of God is about to go. Wow. How do you see that and go, I'm good, i got to write something now. I mean, that, that's unbelievable. In fact, Ezekiel's going to say when he finally gets among the exiles, for the first seven days he just sits there with his mouth shut. He can't even start expressing it yet because he's seen this. These are the four living beings, says verse 20. These are the four living beings that I saw beneath the God of Israel by the river Chebar. So I knew that they were cherubim. Each one had four faces and each one four wings. And beneath their wings was the form of human hands. And as for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces in appearance that I had seen by the river Chebar. Each one went straight ahead. Back to chapter 1. There's a book that I have at home, if anybody would like to look at it, Scroggie's Guide to the Gospels. It's a, uh, an attempt to harmonize the Gospels. It's good. It's a good harmony of the Gospels, just to get some sense of what happens in each of the four Gospels, how they relate to each other, timeline, all that kind of thing. But Scroggie also speculates that the faces on the four living beings correspond to the colors that you find in the tabernacle because God is very specific about the colors he wants in the tabernacle and that they correspond to the four gospels and that that's why there's only four gospels because they correspond to the four faces of the four living creatures and the four colors in the tabernacle. Now, I admit that he may be speculating a little bit, but I'm going to tell you what he says because it is kind of interesting. God's pretty coordinated. He's coordinated. Okay, so let's talk about that. There's four faces, the way Ezekiel describes them. Probably be easier if I write this. Face of a man. Face of an eagle. Face of an ox. Uh, face of the lion. How can I forget that? Okay, so he says that these correspond to the Gospel of Matthew is Matthew proving that Jesus is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, making him King of Kings and ultimately the King of Judah who will rule on David's throne. So that would correspond with the Lion. I, I couldn't read that either. <laughs> Um, Mark, more than any of the other four Gospels, talk about Jesus as the suffering servant, which makes him like a beast of burden. And so that would be like the ox. Luke, writing to Greeks, writing to a Gentile audience, 
he's trying to describe Jesus as the perfect man because the Greeks put such a high price on the perfect human form, which is why the Olympics started in Greece, because it was all about being the perfect man. And of course, you'll remember that when we were talking about the Gospel of John, John is clearly trying to prove that Jesus is God. He is not just a man, but that he is God incarnate, which would make him sail above everybody else. He'd be the eagle. That's the way Scroggy describes it. That would be John. Now, I thought that was kind of cool and interesting. But then he went on to say, there are four colors in the tabernacle in the wilderness. And God's very specific with Moses and tells him what those four colors have to be. One of the colors has to be purple. And in all ancient literature, because purple was so difficult to make, it was an expensive dye, purple clothing was reserved for royalty, for kings. And so he said, purple being representative of kings applied to Matthew. And then he said, scarlet is the next color. Scarlet's also the, the color of the blood of Jesus. And so he'd be the suffering servant. The other two colors are blue and gold. And blue is the color of the skies, where the eagles all are. And so he connected that to the book of John. And of course, gold, tried in the fire, is a way of perfecting. And since Jesus was the perfect man, which was the point that Luke was trying to make, he said it corresponded with Luke. Now, I know when I said this at first, 10 minutes ago, there was a certain amount of scoffing, a certain amount of, wow, that's pretty speculative. But when you look at it like this, you kind of go, eh, maybe there's something to it. I wouldn't put past a coordinated God the ability to do something that amazing. Now, am I saying that's gospel biblical truth you got to follow? Am I saying you're lost if you don't believe this? Well, no. But what I am saying is, that's ah, kind of interesting to me. And uh, I, I appreciated it when I came across it. So I thought I'd share yeah, it with you. We know all the signs and color. We can't understand color, really. Well, you know. You don't know what color's made of. I kind of think that a God who can communicate in words and can communicate in numbers and can communicate in symbols, I, I wouldn't put it past him to communicate in colors, especially when he's that specific about the colors, and especially when Ezekiel and John are that specific about the faces. I, I don't think it was a random choice for God to just go, I don't know, an ox, an eagle, a man, uh, I don't know, uh, all four, put them in. I think he did that on purpose because it's all part of God's way of communicating the, the one message that he's communicating to us. But there it is. Back to Ezekiel 1. We're starting at verse 22. That's where we stopped. Now, over the heads of the living beings, there was something like an expanse, like an awesome gleam of crystal extending over their heads. We talk about the word awesome for just a moment, even though that's an English word now. Once upon a time, that word actually meant full of awe, it's something that ought to make you feel awestruck. And lately, it's a word that's used for everything, you know. We went out last night and saw a movie. Oh, really awesome. That's not awesome. That's very standard. But the word that's being used here, that's being translated out of the Hebrew, means it's something that struck you with a kind of reverence and a kind of awe where you're dumbstruck by it. And so don't lose the fact that he keeps going back to that word and saying, everything I'm seeing here is just beyond human description. So I saw something above them. It was like an expanse, 
like an awesome gleam of crystal extended over their heads. And under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, one toward the other. Each one also had two wings covering their bodies on one side and on the, and on the other. And I also heard the sound of their wings like the sound of abundant waters as they went, like the voice of the Almighty, like the sound of a tumult. He just keeps coming up with new descriptions. It was like many waters. No, wait. It was like the voice of the Almighty. No, wait. It's the sound of a tumult. Wait, it's like the sound of an army camp. He just keeps trying to describe the sound that they made. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. And there came a voice from above the expanse that was over their heads. And whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. Now, Above the expanse that was over their head, there was something resembling a throne, like lapsus lazuli in appearance. And on that which resembled a throne, high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upward something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around and within it. And from the appearance of his loins downward, I saw something like fire, and there was a radiance around him, as the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard a voice speaking. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet so that I may speak with you. Notice he fell down automatically because of the glory of what he saw. He fell on his face forward. And then the spirit of God says, stand on your feet that I may speak with you. And he spoke to me. And as he spoke to me, the spirit entered me and set me on my feet and I heard him speaking to me. In other words, he was powerless to stand before God Almighty. Once the Lord appeared to him, he had to fall on his face. He had no option but to be on his face. And even when God said, stand before me, it took the Spirit of God to lift him to where he could stand before God. I'm amazed at the hubris of human beings who think somehow that they're just going to charge into the presence of God and just start talking about what they think and what they believe. I heard an interview one time with Penn Jillette. Do you know who that is? Mm -hmm. You know Penn and Teller, the magicians? Okay, Penn Jillette's a rather well-known atheist. So he was doing an interview, and somebody asked him, well, what if you're wrong? What if there is a God? And when you die, you have to stand before that God. What then? And his answer, full of typical human ego and hubris, his answer was, well, I'd say to him, how dare you? All the suffering in the world, all the children that die, all the hunger and disease, how dare you make a world like that? And my first thought was, no, you won't. No, you'll be on your face and you'll be terrified because you're going to know immediately that you're not the one with the upper hand here. He's the one with the upper hand here. And you're going to worship that God before he condemns you forever. The hubris of human beings thinks that we're just going to Walk up to God and tell him what we think. We're not. We're going to do exactly what Ezekiel did. We are going to fall on our face, incapable of speaking, incapable of looking up. He's going to have to tell us when it's okay to stand, and then he's going to have to enter us and make us stand because we're not going to have the capability. You see that all the way through the Bible, whether it's Isaiah saying, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. 
God has to send an angel with a tongue to go get a coal off a fire to go touch his lips to even make his lips clean enough to talk to God. And so here Ezekiel falls on his face again. And God calls him by the very specific nomenclature, son of man. That phrase becomes very, very important in describing the Christ. And I think the reason for that is that God identifies him as a man. That's why he calls him son of man. You are part of the lineage of men. These are creatures. These are cherubim. These are angels. I'm God. You're a man. That's what you are. But then to apply that same phrase to Jesus, I think, is to emphasize that though he's God incarnate, he's a man. He took on flesh and blood. And so he ends up being called in the book of Daniel, the son of man. So that's really important in Hebrew literature, in Hebrew religion, whenever talking about the Messiah to come. Son of man is really, really important nomenclature, which is why Jesus calls himself the son of man. So God refers to Ezekiel as son of man. He said to me, son of man, I am sending you to the sons of Israel, to a rebellious people who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. And I am sending you to them who are stubborn and obstinate children. And you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. Now as for them, whether they listen or not, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that there was a prophet among them. And you, son of man, neither fear them nor fear their words, though thistles and thorns are with you, and though you sit on scorpions Neither fear their words, nor be dismayed at their presence, for they are a rebellious house. In other words, this isn't going to be easy. It's going to be full of thorns and thistles. It's going to be like you're sitting on scorpions. And even though they do everything they can to hurt and harm you, you go tell them what I said, no matter what. In a minute, he's going to say, I'm going to make your forehead thicker than their forehead because you're going to be button heads with them. But I'm going to make sure that you bring forth my word no matter what, because whether they listen or not, they're going to know that there was a prophet among them. And if there's a prophet among them, they know God's still alive. God's still speaking. God's still communicating. And they're ignoring the voice of God. That makes them even guiltier. And so he sends them Ezekiel. I'm sending you to them who are a stubborn and obstinate children. And you shall say to them, thus says the Lord. And as for them, whether they listen or not, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, neither fear them nor fear their words, though thistles and thorns are with you. And you sit on scorpions, neither fear their words nor be dismayed at their presence, for they are a rebellious house. But you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they are rebellious. Now you, son of man, Listen to what I am speaking to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I am giving you. And then I looked. Behold, a hand was extended to me. Remember in the book of Daniel that there was just suddenly a hand writing on the wall? There was a hand that wrote in uh, Belshazzar's feast. He looks up. Suddenly there's just... A hand! Ah! (laughs) And the hands extended to me, and lo, a scroll was in it. And he spread it out before me, and it was written on the front and on the back. Usually scrolls were only written on one side. Apparently the lamentations and mournings and woes were so much, we're going to the back side of the scroll now, and we're just going to keep writing. And now we're right at the beginning of chapter 3, which is where we're going to pick up next week. And he has to eat it. It's the very word of God. The word of God is in him. He has to ingest the word of God. And now he's under commission and command from God to speak the word of God, whether they hear it or not. 
which I think is a good preaching admonition. Go out and tell the truth, tell the truth, tell the truth. Don't compromise the truth. Keep telling the truth whether they hear it or not. Why? Because the word of God deserves a telling. The word of God deserves a defense. The word of God deserves to be proclaimed. And I I don't want to harp on it, but I think there are far, far too many preachers these days attempting to make the word of God more attractive to people who rebelliously don't like it, don't want it, and can't hear it. But if you just tell the word of God, it will do the work it's supposed to do. It's not going to return to him void. It's going to accomplish what he sent it to accomplish. And so just preach the word, preach the word, preach the word. Next week, we will pick up at Ezekiel 3, and we'll get a little more insight into God's real genuine anger at Judah and Israel and his first assignment that he has to uh, be a living visual aid so that Israel and Judah know how angry God is. Okie dokie. I guess most churches would say, amen. Amen. (laughs) I I went with okie dokie. If you had seen what Ezekiel saw, could you have described it better? What words do you have to use that could describe that any better? (laughs) But what he saw is what he saw, and he just kept going back to, it was awesome. <laughs> we can grab a couple God pictures. Gave him the words, put it in. I think God gave him the words. I, I believe so. It is, after all, the word of God. That's what scripture is. Yeah, the very word of God. God breathed. All right, say goodbye to the internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.